the model minority doesn't apply to all Asian Americans. So when we talk about Hmong and Laotian, Cambodian Americans, we see rates lower than African-American Latinx students of high school completion, of college entry, right? It, it really is a myth that like all Asian Americans are being successful. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I serve in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is all of the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to the world of education. We are so glad you are here for today's episode. Jeff, do you know that this marks about five months exactly since um, we've recorded in person together? Five months since you've seen me in person. You miss me, Jeff? Yeah, man. I, I do. I do, Manuel. It's, oh, you uh, miss me. It's tugging on my heartstrings to only uh, to only see you through the uh, the interwebs here, Manuel. But uh, but I, I appreciate our virtual time together. Yeah, for sure. This is um this has been a great string of episodes. And if you're new to our show, man, we're so happy to have you. And definitely, definitely check us out on YouTube if you haven't already. We're there at YouTube.com/slash all of the above. These these are video episodes, so you can see our beautiful faces. But of course, we're available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Shout out to all of you who have been submitting reviews via Apple Podcasts. Uh, we've seen them coming in. We, we love the love that you are sharing. And um, yeah, we appreciate y'all. All right, Jeff, there's a lot going on in the world of education, as always. So what do we have on the agenda today? Well, Manuel, we got a good one for everybody, as usual. And I, you know, I think today's topic is going to be a real interesting one for folks because it's it's a different angle on an issue we like to talk about a lot that uh, that is just going to be fascinating. We have an amazing guest. We have Dr. Bettina Shea coming on, who is uh, the director of the teacher education program at the University of Laverne. And uh, she is also a very proud, prominent voice in the Twitterverse on uh, issues of education as it pertains to Asian Americans. And in this kind of historical moment we're all living in, a lot of the issues that have to do with black, brown solidarity and, and Asian black solidarity, right? And so um, she's gonna come help us kind of explore this topic of when we, when we talk about racial disparities in education, we often frame it as kind of like black and Latino and Native American students and white and Asian students uh, as kind of groups lumped together. Um, but that category of Asian or Asian American students is a huge umbrella, right? And one where there is a vast diversity of experiences inside of that category. So uh, Dr. Shea is gonna help us unpack that, talk a little bit about it today. It's gonna be great. You definitely don't wanna miss it. Super dope, looking forward to it. All right, but folks, first it's time for our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. Hey folks, really wanna thank you all for being great supporters of all the above. And I know many of you have asked, how can I help support the show? It's super easy. All you have to do is go to aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can contribute on Venmo or Cash App. You can subscribe via Anchor. 
all of your support makes a huge difference. We're a small operation. It's really just Manuel and just me. That's it. So everything, the cameras, the web hosting, the editing, all the work gets done by the two of us and every bit of support you can give helps us keep bringing you an unstandardized take on education. So thank you. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, now it's time for the Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, we have a pop quiz for everybody. You know, the kids are coming back to school. We got to assess, see where everyone's at. So it's pop quiz time. Yeah, we got to measure that learning loss, Jeff. That's what everyone, everyone's <laughs> all about right now, trying to measure how much learning was lost in the middle of a pandemic. I have comments yes. about that, but we're not going to go there right now. <laughs> Jeff, what's the first quiz question for today? All right, Manuel, pop quiz. First question today is who, who got rid of all the summer school teachers? Ah, uh, yes, I remember back in the day, if you were a history teacher, you could teach history in the summer for students who maybe didn't pass or who wanted enrichment and you could get paid for that. But those positions are hard to find anymore because credit recovery programs have replaced the summer school teachers. Jeff, that's my final answer. Ah, alas, Manuel, you are correct. The credit recovery programs have won, uh, and the summer school teachers uh, are certainly fewer in number than, than they once were. Uh, so this is a story uh, coming out of EdSource by Teresa Harrington. Really interesting story about a kind of scandalous episode with online credit recovery coming out of the Oakland Unified School District. So a, uh, a pretty scathing civil grand jury report accused the Oakland Unified School District of awarding some students unearned grades and allowing unqualified students to graduate at one of its high schools via its use of an online credit recovery program uh, known as Apex Learning. The grand jury called their report Castlemont High cheating its students. And the report stated that the district had failed its students, saying there is no excuse for awarding a high school diploma to those who do not earn it. The report goes on to say that the school had been perpetuating an inequitable and failing system that pushed these students out the door without providing them with a complete education. The report cited abuses of Apex Learning, which is a very common online credit recovery program used throughout the district and frankly throughout lots of districts across California and across the country. And these abuses include grade changing by teachers who sometimes assigned grades for Apex courses that were higher than those recorded in the actual online system. Uh, it also included some students making up an entire semester course in a matter of mere hours, even though Apex courses are generally expected to take between 70 and 90 hours to complete. And a faculty member teaching Apex courses without being credentialed in the actual subject they were teaching. Now, Manuel, uh, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts about this. Uh, I would love to hear them. What say you? Well, I guess I'll preface this by saying it's not right to change academic records. And if a teacher changed the academic record in an unethical way, that's a problem. But that's not really the story here. Um, the, uh, the report was called something about Castlemont cheating its students and the district failing its students. Um, it did fail them and it did cheat them, not by changing their credit recovery online program grades, but by 12 years of underserving the community. I mean, Castlemont High is, just as far as high schools go in California, one of the most underserved, marginalized high schools in the whole state. 
I mean, this has been a struggling high school for a very long time. And for folks who aren't familiar with Castlemont High, just looking at, I mean, not that test scores, everything. And, you know, if you've been following our show, you know, I'm not a big fan of standardized testing at all. But just looking at, at that as a possible measure across California when it comes to um, math proficiency, about 39% of students across California are proficient in math. Castlemont High, that number is less than 5%. When it comes to reading in California, we're talking about 50%, something like that. And for Castlemont, it's less than 5%. The graduation rate, according to the CDE's um, data dashboard, the graduation rate for Castlemont is 57%. A high school to have a 57% graduation rate in 2020 in the world of online credit recovery is just uh, abysmal. So yes, the school is failing its students, but it's not failing them because it's letting them cut corners on these credit recovery programs at the very end of 12 years of disservice. It's failing them that, that whole time. I mean, this is a school, I mean, we're talking about the Bay Area and anybody that knows anything about housing knows that housing in the Bay Area, there's a real crisis going on. So we're talking about just one block from Castlemont, you're seeing homes that, that aren't like very large and aren't the greatest, but that go for half a million and up. So we're talking about huge, huge housing struggles. We're talking about um, tremendous economic segregation when you look at schooling in the Bay Area. Castlemont High is almost entirely black and brown. I think it's something like 99% black and brown and 93% or something around there, um, low SES. So we're talking about a very struggling school that, that fits the category of what um, Diane Ravitch calls the, the toxic mix of racial segregation and economic segregation. So for folks to be upset that these credit recovery programs are being you know, used in a maybe sketchy way to, to help get kids through and, and beyond and let them graduate and move on with their lives, if you're upset with that, but you're not upset with the disservice that has happened to these students along the whole their whole educational trajectory, then really you're you're mad at the wrong the wrong folks. And I'm not a big fan of credit recovery. I think anybody that teaches in a high school context knows that credit recovery programs like kids click through and kids get their credit, but they don't necessarily learn a lot. I believe we talked about that on the show before about a report that came out showing that graduation yeah. graduation rates have gone up, but learning hasn't. And one particular um, reason for that is these online credit recovery programs where students get their credits but don't necessarily learn the content. So, I mean, that's, that's a real story, but the bigger story here is how much these students have been just underserved their entire, entire educational career. So if a kid was allowed to just swindle his or her way through a, you know, economics class at the last minute so that they could get their cap and gown and move on with their lives, I ain't mad at that. Um, again, I'm not condoning it, but that's not really the scandal to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling you on that, man. I, you know, my first reaction when I saw this story was, so relative to what everybody else out there is doing with the online credit recovery, what is, what is this particular school, this particular district doing that's actually all that far outside the norm? And I don't say that to besmirch every, you know, everyone else's reputation, but, but just to say, like, we know online credit recovery is, is not particularly good, right? Um, if, if it was, we would do all school like online credit recovery, right? Exactly. Uh, it's just not that good. But 
neither are the alternatives. Making kids take their classes all over again for the second time does not produce good results either, at least most of the time, right? So, uh, you know, I think what online credit recovery offers us is a way to say, okay, if a kid has failed a bunch of classes, but they are motivated and engaged in school and trying to get caught up, this is a vehicle that can help them do it and help them do that in a more efficient way than having to retake all these courses. And I think fundamentally that's a good thing because the reality is like, let's be real, man. There's not a single person, single adult walking around today who's like regularly using every bit of knowledge and skills that they learned in 11th grade English on their daily job, right? Like yep. there is a certain disconnect uh, between, you know, the applicable skills for living and some of the things that we learn in school is just part of the process of like developing our intellect and our, you know, and our skills and interests, right? So I, I, I to be honest, I'm not like, we have so many issues and scandals to worry about in education and this is nowhere near the top of the list to me. The, the folks who are changing grades and the kids who are finishing a whole course in two hours or whatever, like that's a problem and someone should be disciplined for that, right? Um, but this, this honestly, you know, I was like, what's the giant scandal here? I don't yeah. think this is a giant scandal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Castlemont is located in an area of Oakland that has the highest rates of, of, of co uh, positive uh, COVID tests. I mean, there, when you layer all the housing challenges, the fact that a lot of these, a lot of these kids are, belong to families that are essential workers and are struggling under this pandemic, when you lay just everything together, it's just like, why am I going to be mad that some kids got through um, their f final few credits through this, you know, maybe taking advantage of a credit recovery program that probably doesn't even care because they're raking in their own, you know, their own dollars from kids even taking these courses in the first place. Like that's not the scandal to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also noticed how in this scandalous, you know, capturing of what's taking place, Apex Learning was not, uh, you know, on the hook. This company yeah. that's making millions and millions of dollars off of these credit recovery programs, right? Like maybe some onus needs to be on them to improve their product. Yeah, exactly. Big facts, Jeff, big facts. We love facts here on all of the above. All right, we have another quiz question, Jeff. You ready for this one? The question I'm is, ready. what does ADA stand for? Oh, man. See, here I thought you were going to give me a difficult question, man. I wanted a challenging, rigorous, common core aligned question, Manuel. <laughs> and all I get is this. That's easy. The answer is average daily attendance is the most important metric for every school in California because that's how you get revenue from the state. Final answer. That's how you get your dollars. That's um, right. <laughs> but no, Jeff, you're wrong. You're wrong. Oh. Um, in this case, ADA, of course, is um, stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And this story ah. is about um, a host of violations in school campuses across the country relative to the now 30-year-old landmark case for ensuring access for students with disabilities in this case. All right, so this story comes from Michelle Diamant for DisabilityScoop.com. And um, basically, her story profiles this this report from the Government Accountability Office that found that 30 years after the Americans with Disabilities Act became law, most of the nation's public school districts remain inaccessible to students with disabilities. This Government Accountability Office report found that in 63% of public school districts, at least a quarter of their facilities aren't physically accessible to those with disabilities. 
in 17% of districts, there are schools that just straight up do not serve students with physical disabilities because of the barriers in their buildings. These problems range from ramps that are too steep and playgrounds and restrooms that are inaccessible to door handles that are difficult to use and a host of other issues such as barriers related to safety and security. So for example, uh, for security, a lot of schools have installed double doors or uh, extra defense around the doors with limited maneuvering space that could trap people who use wheelchairs. So here schools are trying to protect students so-called from school shooters and they are in fact building traps for students with disabilities in many cases. So the report looked at 55 schools across six states and an estimated 70% of these districts had large scale renovations, small scale upgrades or accessibility evaluations planned for these next three years. But these districts often cited funding constraints as a challenge to these efforts. Districts also said they need to prioritize projects that keep buildings operational, such as roofing and heating projects. So Jeff, what are your thoughts about this report showing that so many schools across the nation are physically inaccessible to students with disabilities on this 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act? You know, Manuel, my reaction is I'm really glad we're talking about this uh, right now because this is this is a massive issue, right? And in general, right, this this issue of accessibility is one that is um, you know that's obviously important as uh, as a major civil rights cause, right? Um, but if we think about the role that school plays in society, right? Like school is one of those institutions that is supposed to be accessible to everyone by default. You don't have to pay to go. You shouldn't have to, you know, uh, meet some kind of qualifications in order to be welcomed. Whatever your needs are, we work to, to you know, meet you where you are and help address those needs, right? Um, and in terms of physical access to folks with physical disabilities, this is, uh, you know, the reality is like we're just not there, right? We have major barriers in, in lots of school campuses across the country. Now, I will say, of course, there's some like, uh, you know, there's some just practical realities that are at play here, right? So like there are old, older school campus buildings and there are huge cost implications to add elevators or to, you know, modify the physical plant um, in order to make them accessible. And that, you know, I don't imagine we could just snap our fingers and fix all those problems. But there's a big difference between expecting us to snap our fingers and it to be done and waiting 30 years and it's still not done, right? Yep. And so I, to me, the, the length of time is the issue here where we have just, we have failed, right? Like just failed. And I, I will tell you, Manuel, someone who spent, you know, still the, the bulk of my career in New York City, a, uh, a city and um, a district that is just like massively, you know, schools here in California have problems. Schools in New York City, you know, I, I could probably count on one hand the number of schools I visited mm -hmm. that, that were like truly accessible, right? And then you add on to the fact that people get to school by taking the subway, right, <laughs> or taking the bus. And, you know, the buses are accessible for the most part, right? But the subways are not. Um, very few subway stations have, you know, have uh, elevators or ramps at all. Um, you know, you, you have so many barriers in the way of folks in wheelchairs or I was even, I had a major knee surgery uh, about 10 years ago and I was on crutches for like four months. 
And even that experience for me was tremendously limiting and tremendously difficult. And at that time I was working in a network of schools and traveling around to different schools. And I remember the feeling of like, I don't know if I want to go to that, <laughs> that school this week because it's so difficult to get there. And when I get there, there's no elevator and the school's on the third floor and I have to get up to the school on the third floor, right? So it is, it, these, these are very real issues. I know a lot of folks who are able-bodied don't think about particularly regularly, but this is, this is a huge issue, Manuel, and I'm, I'm glad we're talking about it today. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that point at the end about how a lot of folks who are able-bodied don't really think about these things. I know that's one thing that I've been trying to work on is just my own ableism and my own, just the fact that we, we speak about marginalized populations so much on the show and so much of what I do is driven um, by my pursuit of educational justice for all groups. And, and a lot of times I just don't really think about students with physical disabilities in this case. Um, and that's something that I definitely have to work on. I really definitely take, um, take it for granted, just like that me and the majority of the students I have are, are able-bodied able-bodied folks and I don't really think about the fact that even though you know the building I work in is is pretty old I our, our campus has been there the school has been there since the 20s I mean Jackie Robinson uh, graduated from our school I don't know necessarily the building that I work in I don't know how old that building is but I do know there's there's elements of it that are hard to maneuver and I just you know never really think about that as like in as I try to process all the things wrong in education today. So um, I'm definitely glad that that this story is being highlighted and I'm hoping that we get, you know, the, the report itself recommended that it's not just a funding issue necessarily, but it's also a technical assistance issue. I guess when it comes to stadiums and in public uh, gathering places, there's a lot more technical assistance from the Department of Justice about how to meet the requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But when it comes to school campuses and classrooms, there's less technical assistance, at least according to this report. So the one thing that re the report recommends is that the Department of Justice and the Department of Education uh, work together to help schools understand what they have to do to be ADA compliant. Um, so, you know, there's that, but then I hear that and then I'm like, hmm, Department of Justice, Department of Education, in this year, 2020, <laughs> I can't count on them or yeah, anything. Betsy like and anything. Bill Barr like, ain't doing a damn thing. A damn well. thing. If anything, <laughs> it's just like, hmm, how could we spin this into providing parents more school choice and, and providing them opportunities to take that taxpayer money and go to a private school where their doorknobs are ADA compliant or something. Yeah, so, you know, so that's definitely, um, I don't have a lot of hope for that happening, but I do question, and you know, I don't know because I haven't served in the military, but I do question the extent to which these problems exist in the military because I, I just feel like when it comes to funding for like upgrading classroom doorknobs, you know, I just think in my head in the military, that's probably like not even a question like, oh yeah, just do it. But in schools, it's just like, well, we could do that for our, you know, to be ADA compliant, or we could work on the heating because the, you know, the heating isn't working and that's, you know, that'll benefit a greater uh, number of folks. I don't know. So making those, those decisions, um, as we're referred to in the report, I just, you know, I just can't help but think about how much money we spend on our military and how far that money could go if we used it to really, really uh, work on our infrastructure, including our, our physical campuses and whatnot. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. No, this is an important story. I'm glad we're talking about it. And, um, you know, we, 
we need to do better, right? We, we are in some cases, I know you folks will probably notice you go to a newer school campus, right? And, and you'll notice ramps and elevators and you know wider spaces and some of those sorts of things that are very clear cues that this is being made as an, an accessible space. But, uh, but we have a long, long way to go right now and, and we, should, we should demand and expect more from our school systems and we should pay to fix them. Yeah, straight up. All right, folks, that about does it for today's Do Now. And up next, we will have a super dope conversation with Dr. Bettina Shea about Asian Americans and education and justice and, and all things in between. All right, so stay tuned. Hey, Manuel, is that a new shirt? Why, yes, it is a new shirt. See that? See that? Looks nice, don't it? Looks nice, don't it? This is a uh, AOTA logo t-shirt that I got at the AOTA store. Um, folks, if you wanna support us and buy some merch, we got t-shirts and hoodies and, and mugs and all that stuff. If you go to aotashow.com slash support, you'll see a little button there for merchandise and click on that. It'll take you to our little storefront and you can get a shirt like the one I'm wearing right now or a hoodie or whatever you want. All right, so aotashow.com slash support and you'll see the little button there that'll take you to our store all right folks now it's time for today's seminar and before i i introduce today's guest formally i just got to say i i came across this fantastic educator on twitter and just like following her on twitter i'm like wow she's 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 pretty dope and then I ended up at her blog and read some of her posts there. I was like, wow, she's actually super dope. And then I heard her on the Black Gaze podcast. Shout out to Black Gaze podcast. And I was like, whoa, this educator is phenomenally dope. And we absolutely must bring her on to all of the above because we have a, a long streak of only inviting the phenomenally dope educators onto our show. So we are very, very, very pleased to have with us today, Dr. Bettina Shea. Dr. Shea, thank you so much for joining us here on All of the Above. Thank you so much for having me, Manuel and Jeff. I'm super excited to be here. And I feel honored to be described as phenomenally dope given some of the folks you've had on um, All of the Above. It's all big facts though. We love facts here on All of the Above. And uh, folks, um, if you're not familiar with Dr. Shea's work, let me give you a little background um, about who she is. And um, Dr. Bettina Shea, she's a professor who serves as the Director of Teacher Education at the La Fetra College of Education at the University of Laverne. Her teacher education work is informed by her urban middle school teaching and literacy coaching experiences, her work as co-director of the Bay Area Writing Project, and her mothering. Her current research interests include Asian American teachers, mother scholars, identity-informed mentoring in teacher education, and teacher and teacher educator identity. At the heart of Dr. Shea's work is the exploration of how who we are shapes what we do and the choices we make as teachers and teacher educators. Her recent publications include articles in Contemporary Issues in Technology and Teacher Education, English Teaching, Practice and Critique, Literacy Research and Instruction, and the Journal of Diversity in Higher Education. 
And this is really a perfect time for Dr. Shea to join us here because as California educators, now if you follow our show, if you watch our show or listen and you aren't in the state of California, you might not be aware but education, I mean, this is a messy time in education throughout the nation and throughout the world with the COVID crisis, of course, and nationally, the um, uprisings that that followed the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and others. And so education, this is already a, a tough time for educators. But in California specifically, we have a ballot initiative this November that is Prop 16, and it looks to restore affirmative action in California. So myself as a teacher, I'm seeing an uptick in, in folks trying to divide the Asian American and black community and, and prop up Asian American academic uh, achievement as proof that there's no systemic racism. And then, of course, we have all the bigotry and, and hatred around the COVID crisis and folks trying to uh, aim their 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 hatred towards Asian American folks. So it's just a really tough time. And our, our audience tends to be folks who really want to do right by our kids in schools. So Dr. Shea, we're just hoping that you could help us bring some clarity um, to this, this really big moment in, in education. And um, with that, I think Jeff has our First question. All right, Dr. Shea, uh, it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today on All the Above. And um, recently, you published an article with Dr. Jung Kim entitled Challenging the Invisibility of Asian Americans in Education. And I wonder if you can start off by telling us a little bit about uh, what you mean by the invisibility of Asian Americans and how that manifests in various ways in our, in our field of education. Yeah, so that's a really great question, Jeff. Um, so invisibility kind of starts off young, right? So when we think about Asian Americans, I think about my own Asian American experience as a student and as an Asian American young woman growing up, right? As a girl, I never saw myself reflected in the curriculum, right? So one of the places where we see invisibility is we don't actually have stories of Asian Americans. Like there'll be a throw into multicultural like lit with Amy Tan, right? As if Amy Tan and her particular Chinese American experience, right? Like represents all of Asian America, right? And that inclusion of that one short story or the Joy Luck Club is enough to represent every single Asian American experience ever. So there's invisibility in terms of the English curriculum, the history curriculum, right? We don't know about the contributions of Asian Americans, right? If we see Asian Americans in history curriculum, we see them as part of the Chinese Exclusion Act and maybe Japanese incarceration, right, during World War II. And that's all we really know. We don't know about the histories of Asian Americans um, in solidarity with other people of color groups, um, any affirming, right, views of Asian Americans. And we don't see Asian Americans kind of represented in our classrooms either. So um, one of the statistics that you know, kind of haunts the work that, that we're doing is the lack of representation of Asian Americans in classrooms as teachers as well, right? So Asian Americans are actually the fastest growing immigrant group in the United States. Um, and a lot of people don't know that. Um, but right now, Asian Americans are 6% of the population, the school age population, and yet there are only 2% of all of the teachers in the United States who are Asian American. So there's a lot of underrepresentation of Asian Americans as teachers in the classroom across diverse fields, despite the fact that Asian Americans are actually, um, some subgroups of Asian Americans are um, 
highly qualified to be teachers, right? So what is it that is keeping um, Asian Americans out of classrooms so they're not serving as role models for other, um, for other students, right? Not just Asian American students, but all students. Um, so there's invisibility there in education, but then there's also invisibility when we think like within Asian America, because when we think about the Asian diaspora in America, um, a lot of people tend to think about a certain type of Asian, right? Like they think about East Asians, usually Chinese, Japanese, maybe Korean, right? And then that's like all of Asian America, but there are many other Asian um, subgroups that aren't really considered in the conversation, right? So South Asians, Southeast Asians, um, undocumented Asians, right? Like we don't hear like the story of the diversity. So there's a lot of invisibility there. And then like there's invisibility um, of the oppression that Asian Americans face, have faced historically and currently face and the intersectional kind of oppressions that they face um, as immigrants, right, based on class status, based on um, gender identity, right, sexual orientation, right, there's all these things where we think about, we tend to think about Asian Americans through these lenses, um, these stereotypical lenses, right, that they're quiet, hardworking, um, academically successful, and it really renders invisible any of um, the challenges that Asian Americans have faced and also the histories of advocacy and solidarity and the voices that Asian Americans have because they're all filtered through this lens. So we, um, in our special issue, talk about that. So the article that we published was actually the introduction to a special issue that Dr. Kim and I co-edited um, to really highlight some of that diversity within Asian America, which often gets... Um, rendered invisible, right? Which is kind of part of the whole, I mean, larger agenda of white supremacy, right? It's like, if we don't know our histories, if we don't know who we are, if we are invisible, then we're more willing to take on whatever identity may be assigned to us by people in power. And so I think it's really, um, this idea of invisibility is um, really important to challenge in general, kind of in all of the spaces of education. Yeah, for sure. That's deep. And that takes me back to growing up in, I grew up in South Sacramento and um, my neighborhood was really diverse in the sense of we had black, brown, we had a lot of Asian American folks and, and the folks that I grew up with um, who are Asian American, a lot of them were Vietnamese or Hmong, yes. a lot of Southeast Asian folks who like, like me and my friends and everybody else in the hood were like struggling. And I remember like when, when the affirmative action debate started, not started, but, uh, was kicked up in the nineties with Prop 209. I remember hearing folks talking about how great Asian Americans were doing in schools and this and that. And I'm looking around, I'm like, man, they in the streets, just like, just like me and my friends, what are you talking right? about? Um, right. so yeah, this complete like invisibility of particular subgroups, especially. Yes. And and the struggles and marginalization for sure. Um, and you know, speaking of that, I want to read a, a piece of the article and um, see if you could elaborate for us some to help clear some of this up for folks. So sure. in that same article, you all write that, quote, the model minority myth with its emphasis on Asian American character traits of hard work and high achievement is used to discredit claims of structural racism, particularly those of black Americans. And um, we're seeing a lot of that play out now. I've, I've seen, I don't know how many tweets already from anonymous accounts or from bots or from trolls uh, basically pointing to um, academic achievement of Asian American folks and saying, you know, sarcastically like, oh yeah, there's so much systemic racism, huh? That's why uh, Asian Americans are, are outperforming everybody else. Um, we're wondering if you could 
talk to us a little bit more about that that model minority myth and that that effort to try to use that as as a I guess piece of evidence that there is no such thing as structural racism anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's hard about being Asian American and and being somebody who does research on Asian American is pretty much you always have to like filter everything through the, and let me tell you why the model minority myth lens is a myth, right? Like tell you why it's, it's actually not true. So um, one of the things is, you know, as I talked about in the answer to the last question, right, the model minority myth is based on a very particular group of Asian Americans, right? And it ignores the structural, um, components of the creation of even the group that it says is the model minority, right? So if we look at um, immigration policy, right, immigration policy created the model minority myth. And if we look at um, how Asian Americans were viewed prior to the 1960s, 1970s, there was no model minority, right? Asian Americans were characterized with many of the similar stereotypes that we hear against other people of color groups, right? That they were dirty, right? They are, foreign invaders. And we're seeing some of that with kind of the rise in COVID-19 xenophobia and racism. Um, But, right, what created the model minority myth is this phenomenon called hyper-selective immigration, right? And so basically, in um, when there were, when there was reform to um, immigration in the 19, starting in the 1950s, and then moving through the 1960s, and ending kind of in the 1965 Immigration Act, right? It, said that there would be priority given to very high achieving, right, the highest of the high achieving, like immigrants from particular countries, right, and a lot of these were um, East Asian, South Asian countries, right, so we see that there was a structural creation of like, oh, the elite of the elite academics, like scientists, like engineers, like they can come over and they get a shot at being, um, American, right? Like they get to come over, they get to be Americanized sort of, you know, um, provisionally. Um, And then we get to hold them up, right, as a tool to say that discrimination doesn't exist. So first of all, like, that's a problem. And then when we look at um, Asian American success, again, like you said, Manuel, like, we're not talking about every single Asian American, right? If we actually disaggregate the data, right, and look, Um, the model minority doesn't apply to all Asian Americans. So when we talk about Hmong and Laotian, Cambodian, right, um, Americans, we see rates lower than African-American Latinx students of high school completion, of college entry, of percentage of, um, percentage of folks over 25 who have a college degree, right? If we look at newer refugee communities, if we disaggregate, Um, in a variety of ways, we see that it's not true, right? It it really is a myth that like all Asian Americans are being successful. And then the thing that is also super ironic about Asian Americans being used to like justify like the end of affirmative action is that Asian Americans have benefited extensively from affirmative action, right? Like Asian, it's, um, there's evidence to show that actually affirmative action and race race conscious admissions processes, race conscious hiring processes actually benefit Asian Americans allowing, because I think there's this idea, right? Um, Sorry, I know we may be talking about uh, affirmative action in a minute, but there's this idea that like, 
we don't need the help. But the fact is that like hard work isn't enough to break down these structures, right? So when we think about the bamboo ceiling, right? Like, so even with Asian Americans getting all this academic attainment, they still don't get paid at the same rate that um, white people doing comparable jobs that may be less educated than they are. They don't rise up past middle management, right? So there are still certain barriers that happen. And then, um, you know, Again, this prop of divisiveness of the model minority, so it's not true. And then when it's used, it's used um, to divide us, to divide Asian Americans from other people of color groups um, and say like, okay, well, you can have this like elevated status, right? Um, as long as you buy into the current structure and that's not helpful for anybody, right? So I don't know if that, I feel like I kind of, wove my way around the seminar there but oh, no, that um, does that right help break point. it down a little bit yeah yeah and uh, uh dr shea as you were talking you were you were making me think and uh, manuel's earlier comments um also resonate with me because so i grew up in saint paul minnesota which you know a lot of the country may, might not know a ton about but um has one of the larger Hmong populations yep. of any metro area in the country and uh, it wasn't actually until I got to college that I learned about the idea of the of the model mi minority myth. Uh, and I remember looking around and being like, who's this who's this model minority of Asians that you're right. that you're talking about? Because they live in the hood like black and brown folks do. And they get you know excluded from the gifted and talented programs in school and they get harassed by the police. And, you know, they are in the same struggle. Uh, as you know, as black folks are in a lot of ways, and um, and so uh, the the sort of gigantic umbrella, maybe uh, for lack of a of a better term, of uh, of the very concept of Asian American is is kind of an interesting starting place for the conversation, and I, and I think in the preface to your article uh, challenging the invisibility of Asian Americans in education, you uh, and Dr. Jung Kim even mentioned that, the sort of like, we're using this term, but this term is perhaps a challenging term unto itself. I wonder, I wonder if you could um, share you know, a little bit more about that. About the challenge of the term of the model minority? Of the the use of the term Asian American as, oh, Asian like, American. as sort yes. of an all encompassing, uh, you know, monolithic term. Yeah, absolutely. And before I get to that, I just kind of wanted to go back to something you said, Jeff. You know, about how both of your experiences, right, and where you grew up and growing up around Asian Americans that aren't kind of part of the whole model minority myth. I think one of the things that the model minority myth does too is when Asian Americans aren't performing like they're expected to, they're cast as lazy, right? Or they're cast as like, well, why aren't you being like this way that we think you're supposed to be, right? Like it must be laziness. And so a lot of times Asian Americans who are struggling in school don't get the supports that they actually need because people think that, oh, well, it's because you're not um, this thing that you're supposed to be, right? Um, because society casts you in this role, so you're not actually getting the support that you need when you're actually struggling. But um, to kind of get back to the Asian American term, yeah, absolutely. It's um, we struggled a lot with kind of how we talked about like the Asian diasporic peoples in America, right? And talking about Asian America because um, 
So first of all, a lot of times people lump in Pacific Islanders with Asian Americans. And it's been kind of an evolutionary process for us too, because initially we're like, okay, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, like we want to be inclusive of like, um, you know, folks from the Pacific Rim, right? And then Pacific Islander scholars were like, well, yeah, but if you're not going to actually include like scholars from the Pacific Islands, right? So native Hawaiians, if you're not going to, um, if you're not going to hear from people, right, who are Pacific Islander, then don't use the term AAPI, right? Which is a term that we hear very commonly because we actually then erase the Pacific Islander experience in Asian America, right? And when we use Asian American, like we have to be really conscious of, again, that erasure and that invisibility. And, you know, for Jung and I, because Dr. Kim is Korean American and I'm Taiwanese American, and if we look at, like, if we do disaggregate the data, right, um, Taiwanese Americans happen to be, like, up kind of towards that upper echelon of, like, highly college educated, right? There's a lot of privilege, and we're both, um, you know, now kind of in this middle class, like, um, academic environment. Um, so we recognize there's kind of a lot of privilege within the term of Asian America. And like when we speak, right, we don't want our voices to be able to speak. Like I can't speak even for all Taiwanese Americans, right? Like I'm a second generation Taiwanese American. I was born in this country and I have unique experiences as the daughter of um, a Taiwanese and Chinese immigrant, right, from Taiwan. Um, but I can't even speak, right, fully for all Taiwanese Americans. So then to have an issue that, like, talks about Asian Americans, it's like, do we want to further, like, reify or contribute to the erasure of certain Asian American um, subgroups, right? And so we try to be, um, in our selecting of articles for that special issue, conscious of, um, whose voices tend to be erased or left out of conversations, right? And um, even within Asian America, like we talk about, like there are generational differences. So my experience as a second generation um, daughter of immigrants is different than my children's experience. My children are multiracial Asian Americans. My husband is from Peru. And so, you know, their experience is different, right? And Dr. Kim's children similarly, right? Third generation, um, multiracial Asian Americans. Um, but then we have an article in there that is looking at international students. And, you know, recently there's been a lot of, um, uh, you know, there's been recent immigration policy against like international students and kind of the struggle. And we don't, like we have friends that are international students and international faculty and on H-1B or F-1 visas, but that's not our experience, right? So then when you are Asian American, I mean, part of what we talk about too, the other prevalent myth besides a model minority is the forever foreigner or the perpetual foreigner myth. And it's this idea that like, oh, well, you look Asian, so you must be first generation, you must speak with an accent, you must, but actually those voices get silenced a lot in Asian America, right? Because there's this distancing of, oh, I'm not fresh off the boat. I'm not you know, that kind of Asian American. I'm this kind of Asian American. And so, yeah, the term is really, um, is really complicated because some people don't even identify as this pan-ethnic Asian American. Like they prefer to identify as Taiwanese American. And I, I actually, um, or 
their ethnic group American or just their ethnic group, right? Um, so my good friend, um, my bestie, um, Min Jung Pai was on All of the Above, you know, a while ago. Yeah. And, you know, um, depending on where she's at, like she, she identifies herself in um, different ways, right? And I do too, right? And so it's always this constant negotiation um, within and outside of Asian American spaces, like how you choose to identify and like, um, and then the other complicated thing, and then I'll stop after this, is that, you know, the origins of Asian America, right? The term Asian American came about um, in the 1960s, like during the Third World Liberation Front Movement for Ethnic Studies um, at San Francisco State, right? And so that term wasn't even a term, like it's only been a term for like 50 years, right? And so, and it was a term of political solidarity. And so it has different meaning when people use the term as a term of like pan-ethnic solidarity versus using it as a term to like classify your racial status. And again, like when you use the term, like because there's so much diversity in the beliefs among Asian Americans, it, we have a lot of work to do, right? Like in terms of like, it doesn't mean all this or all this. And um, yeah, it's complicated, like you said. Yeah, and even just bringing that up, the ethnic studies part up, I know there's been uh, discussions and disagreements about the Asian American aspect of ethnic studies and if that should include Arab American studies under that umbrella. And just it seems like, I mean, shocker here to anybody listening, but when we talk about overarching racial categorizations in America and you, you know, ask two or three critical questions um, about categorizations, they start to fall apart pretty quickly because, you yes. know, race, of course, is, is a fictional construct and um, it's, it's, it's a hell of a mess. All right. So um, speaking of the, the messiness of racial categorizations on your on your blog, and we'll link to that on our website, AOTAshow.com, um, you wrote a really powerful open letter um, entitled An Open Letter to My Asian American Friends and Family on Anti-Blackness and Solidarity. So, of course, we've seen a summer of national uprisings around uh, America's reckoning with anti-blackness. And in that open letter, uh, you call on, on folks within the Asian American community to stand in solidarity with black folks uh, for their mutual liberation. We're wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that solidarity between uh, Asian American folks and, and black folks. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is actually one of my favorite topics to talk about. And this is what my Black Gays podcast episode was all about too. Um, so when we kind of started the, the seminar, right, we were talking about the invisibility of Asian Americans. And one of the things I, I think I referenced was this idea of our invisibility in movements of solidarity, right? And our invisibility, our invisible history as people of color. And so one of the things that um, I think is really important to recognize is that Black American and Asian American um, struggles have been linked for a long time, and we have been showing up for each other historically for a long time. And this divisiveness um, is really a tool of white supremacy, right? And we see that, um, like, we see kind of the conditional nature of um, Asian American proximity to whiteness, um, even recently with the COVID-19 xenophobia and racism that's happened, right? Where we see that, you know, Asian Americans who have been used as a prop 
right, as, you know, the model minority, all of a sudden become like the virus, right? Like you are a virus, you're a foreigner, you're, you're here to infect us. And we see that in the rise in hate crimes, right? Um, 800 in California, 1200 nationwide, um, in, you know, by early July, right, um, in response to kind of this, this xenophobia and racism. And so we have to recognize that our status is conditional. And I think one of the things that has happened to Asian Americans, um, you know, in this time kind of leading to COVID is there's this, there is this erasure, right? There's this, like, because we don't know our histories and our histories of solidarity and our histories of, of mutual oppression and our histories um, and, and the current reality of that, right? Um, we don't understand the importance of solidarity and not just solidarity because black leaders led the civil rights movement that led to us getting rights, which is true, right? But also solidarity because we've been part of this movement for a really long time. And it's really important as people of color that we recognize that we, um, I mean, as you said, Manuel, like our liberation is mutually bound, right? Like we don't need to, fight for the scraps of white America, like we actually are the majority and we actually are, like our oppressions are different, right? Like we are racialized in different ways. We have different consequences, right? Like anti-blackness, like this country was founded on anti-blackness and indigenous um, genocide, right? So like, we're not in that same like oppression category and it's not the oppression Olympics, right? Like black Americans show up and show out for Asian Americans. And we also, right, like not just as a return thing, but because like we understand that like as people of color, like we need to have the right to tell our stories, right? And when we all come together and say, we need the rights to tell our stories, we need the rights to live our lives, right? We need the rights to exist in a world where we can be free and not have to be justifying ourselves and our existence based on stereotypical lenses of who you think I am because you see me on the street. And then I have to prove you wrong by opening my mouth or bringing out my degrees or like, um, you know, acting a certain way or code switching or whatever, you know, we can relate to those experiences. They're different experiences, but in so many ways, like we feel the weight of white supremacy, right? As Asian Americans, as Black Americans, as um, you know, Latinx Americans, like you, you really you feel it, right? And so the importance of solidarity is like we need to come together, right? If we look at the history again, like I'm going to bring up the ethnic studies movement, like how did we even get? to tell our stories at the higher education level. It's because of a movement of solidarity, right? It's because like the people of color in the world like came together and said, you know, we have more to benefit from coming together. Like we are the majority when we come together. Um, and so it's really important. And the thing is that Asian Americans do in many respects have some privilege, right? Like it's the model minority myth, it's, it's a lie. But there is truth in the fact that I have a lot of privilege, right? Like I am heard differently as a non-Black person of color who is Berkeley educated, right? Who, um, you know, is middle class, who can speak with all of these ways and I have different circles. And so it is our responsibility where we have privilege to in love and community, like advocate for one another, 
right? And to bring one another along in our liberation because none of us are free. And I talk about in that blog, like what has it cost us? Like as Asian Americans, we really need to think about what it has cost us to buy into this myth right? Like, what have we sacrificed? Like, we sacrifice our voices, we sacrifice our identities, we sacrifice embracing who we truly are as Asian Americans, in order to ascribe to this, like, ideal of whiteness that we can never have, right? Like, you can say, like, you can get this far. And that's why respectability politics, right, like, that come up for people of color groups, like, it affects us all differently. So, you know, when we talk about solidarity, we have to use the privilege we have. And I think as Asian Americans, we do have some privilege um, that our non-Asian American people of color, brothers and sisters don't have, right? Um, but we also need to come together to realize like we all suffer under white supremacy, like white folks suffer under white supremacy too, right? Like because we're, none of us is free right, when we're holding each other down. And so we need to come together and use what privilege and power we do have, what positions we do have to support one another in the work, right? And not just now, like not just in this moment where like, oh yeah, like I feel discriminated against because Asian Americans are like, you know, experiencing more hate crimes. So now I can relate to like my black and brown like siblings, right? No, it's like, this is, just a manifestation of the things that have been happening systemically for years and years. And so we really need to build this as a solidarity movement. And this moment that we're in, this current historical moment can really help us build towards movement. Yeah. Well, here, here, here on that, uh, <laughs> on yeah. that point, uh, sure. Dr. Shea, for sure. Um, and I'm wondering for, for our final question today, if we can kind of pivot a little bit of our attention to your your direct work around uh, teacher education. And the state of California, like most parts of the country, um, suffers from a bit of what we would call a diversity gap, right? So, um, you know, the population of the students of our state is majority students of color, um, and the population of the teacher force, uh, you know, nationally certainly is um, still overwhelmingly white. And um, I wonder if you can share a little bit about how in the teacher preparation program at uh, the University of Laverne, you all are working to kind of address uh, these issues and prepare teachers to, uh, to teach the, the, the diverse, rich student body that we have and also, you know, working across difference. Yeah, so that's an excellent question, Jeff. Thanks for asking it. Um, I, um, so there's a lot of different fronts. So, um, so I think kind of bridging the last question with this question, right? Because some of the work is solidarity work, right? So um, I, I recently was on a, um, a webinar on um, black male teacher pipelines, right? So like when, when I talked earlier about, you know, Asian Americans being 2% of um, the teaching population kind of across the nation, right? It's, it's a little bit higher in, um, in California, but black males are 1.2% of, um, of the teaching population in all of California, right? And we even look at a state as diverse as California and we do see that diversity gap, right? Um, it's a little bit less bad in California than it is kind of across the nation, but we still um, you know, have a lot of um, 
have a lot of students of color, like we have our majority students of color and we have majority white teachers, right? And so one of the things is we do have to build pipelines for teacher of color success, right? And so um, I'm new to the University of Laverne and we are working on um, building those pipelines within our program, um, but also I'm involved in kind of statewide discussions and statewide organizations related to teacher education. And um, this webinar that I'm referring to was focused on building a black male teacher pipeline, right? And what are the things that keep, um, what are the obstacles that we place in the way of black male teachers um, being successful starting in K-12, going through teacher education and then into the field? And actually that's what a lot of my research work has been on too, is like, not just looking at what are the obstacles, but how do we view teacher candidates of color and teachers of color? And are we drawing from their um, cultural and linguistic funds of knowledge, which is a term from cultural anthropology from um, Louis Moll and his colleagues, right? How do we develop their community cultural wealth, which is um, from Tara Yoso, right? Like how do we, take the richness that they bring because you know the thing is that we in k-12 right and teacher education and the field still see teachers of color through a deficit lens or students of color we see people of color through deficits because that's what's been ingrained in us right so we see and we're like oh what's wrong with their home life what's wrong with them like why aren't they being successful because you know when you reproduce the teaching structures, right, the teachers are people who have been successful in education. So then when they see a student that's not successful, they're not looking at themselves, they're looking at the student and saying, what's wrong with the student, right? And so we've seen, right, there's evidence, there are studies, there's research that's been done that says, you know, teachers of color are more effective, not only with students of color, but they're preferred by all students, right? White students, students of color, they're preferred by everybody. But we see there's, a, there's pipeline leaks all the way around, right? Because if you don't have a good K-12 experience, you know, some of my teacher candidates who are teacher candidates of color are like, well, I chose to go into teaching because I had a terrible experience and I don't want to be that teacher. But most, right, but most K-12, you know, students of color who have made it successfully through college are like, well, I'm done with K-12 because look at the way I was treated here. And like, I made it. So like, I'm going to go make more money doing something else because now I have a college degree, right? Um, but then the ones that stay, they face microaggressions. Um, my good friend, uh, Dr. Lynette Mawini, she's, um, I believe now at the Graduate School of Education um, at the University, or at Rutgers. Um, so she did, has done some work on teacher pushouts right, like teacher of color push out or urban school teacher push out. And we see that that begins even in teacher education, right? That we see that there are um, gatekeeper tests that are keeping teachers of color out, gatekeeper, um, you know, mentors, right? Like if we don't have mentors that are teachers of color that recognize the assets that they bring in, like that's a gatekeeper. And then when we look at the field, right, what teachers of color, just like, um, faculty of color are asked to take on, right, this extra advising role, this extra, like, oh, we need a diverse representative, let's call on, because there are so few people of color that it's like, okay, well, we need, and then the teachers of color themselves are like, well, we have to take this on, because this is our community, right, these are our kids, like, and they burn out, right, and, and, and it's not just burnout, it's push out, right, like, it's active structural push out, right, because people are tired, because you can only do so many things in one body right? Um, and so 
to get back to kind of your question about like, what are we doing about it? So one of the things is we have to start looking at ourselves as teacher educators because teacher education is also predominantly white as a field, right? And so one of the things is teacher teacher educators of color, like looking, I actually recently wrote an article on this, co-authored this with um, Dr. Oscar Navarro and Dr. Sherry Duckman and um, Ms. Christine Quint. We just wrote an article um, that was out last year in 2019 around teacher educators of color and how we can use our positions, right, to um, draw from the funds of knowledge of teachers of color and prospective teachers of color, like as former teachers of color who are now teacher educators. So one is like, we need to create role models in teacher education. And then we need to do the reflective practice to start dismantling those barriers. So one of the reasons, um, I decided to step into an administrative director position is because I really want to take a look at um, the barriers we're setting, right? Like there are state barriers, right? Like there are tests and performance assessments and um, that are very high stakes that kind of dictate, I mean, it's similar to the way it happens in K-12, right? Where standardized tests like end up dictating your curriculum because if you don't pass, like the kids can't get a degree, right? Or the kids can't like get into like enrichment classes and I mean, so many of the things we know that keep kids in school, right? So we have that same high stakes assessment at the teacher ed level, right? And so, but there are things given to us by the state and then there are things that we do as a program, right? So are there ways to reconceptualize the work that we're doing to honor wanting to give teachers, um, all teachers, teachers of color and white teachers, like the skills they need to be successful, um, but removing some of the barriers that we know are, um, and being aware of our own biases as teacher educators in terms of working with teachers of color. And then we have the second side of that, which is we still have a majority of white teachers and we can't just ignore white teachers and be like, okay, well, you know, I only wanna teach to the teachers of color and like, let's like, um, you know, I think it's good to center. I'm, I'm just gonna be direct. I think it's good to center um, the experiences of teachers of color because like they're so invisible in so many places. So I think finding affirmation and role models and aspirational like um, teachers and teacher educators of color is central. But I also think, you know, we're not going to deconstruct whiteness alone, right? And we're not going to... Um, we're not going to build a better educational system without white people, right? Like, or without white teachers, like that's just, it's silly. Right. And it's, um, you know, I am somebody who really believes in working in community. Right. And, um, and I think that people, I mean, I try to operate from a place of love and try to operate from a place of, um, working with, people doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have, right? So then what is the knowledge that they need that they don't have that could help better prepare them um, for being in diverse classrooms? And I think the number one thing that, um, that I've been trying to focus on is shifting from a deficit mindset to an asset-based mindset, right? And so um, Dr. Goldie Muhammad actually wrote this great book that has like, um, well, she and yeah. Dr. Bettina Love, another Bettina who I love, um, her name is <laughs> Bettina Love, right? Like they wrote these books that have really like been central to my thinking. So um, Dr. Love's book is We Want to Do More Than Survive, right? And then Dr. Muhammad's book is Cultivating Genius, right? 
And both of these books, like, so Dr. Love's book really talks about the damage that we do, particularly black children, but black and brown children, right, in our educational system, right? And the way that we spirit murder these children, like well-intentioned teachers, like, and she's coming from a place that like teachers aren't going in to, to spirit murder children, right? Like that's not why we get into the profession. But when we reproduce these harmful acts, like we are actually hurting children and nobody wants to hurt children. Teachers don't go into teaching to hurt children, right? But then how do we counteract that? Well, we have to be able to see our children for the genius that they have. So Dr. Muhammad's book, Cultivating Genius, right, is beautiful because it really centers like the assets and the genius that, um, that black children, that children of color bring to classrooms, right? And we have to be able to see, like, if we reframe, like, even the term English language learners, right, to emergent bilingual students, right? Like, if we start to think about the fact that we think about additive bilingualism when somebody's first language is English, but we don't think about it that way when somebody's first language is something else, right? And that's a deficit mindset, right? So if we can begin reframing that and thinking about, Knowledge can be different, but it's not bad. And come from a place of, okay, like, it doesn't have to be the way that we know. Like, we as teachers can also be positioned as learners. And we can understand and recognize the humanity of the students that are in front of us. And we have to be aware that, like, this is not like a kumbaya, yes, everybody brings knowledge. Knowledge has power, right? And we have to teach our teachers to be aware of the systems and structures of power because you can't counteract something that you can't see that you don't know right so i would say like really concretely the number one thing is deconstructing that deficit that deficit mindset right and starting to approach children and teaching through that asset-based mindset and then giving teachers tools to be not just culturally responsive but culturally sustaining but then also like helping them to act in anti-racist ways, right? Like we can't just go on with business as usual and say, yes, I affirm you if we're not actually willing to give up power in certain ways. And that means that you're not always going to be right and you're not always going to know. And that's uncomfortable, but we have to prepare teachers to be uncomfortable because otherwise like it's our students who bear and our, and predominantly our students of color, our students in poverty, our LGBT students, our students with disabilities who are bearing that discomfort because they don't fit into, um, you know, what teachers think our successful students should look like. And so that's the work that we're really trying to do um, in my program. We have a really great dean. We have great faculty that are taking hard looks at themselves and beginning to look at, like, how are my practices teaching to this test or like, um, you know, not affirming the brilliance of the students who are in my class. And, and we're thinking about how we place students and making sure that we put them in kind of um, diverse environments and, and gradually help them to understand like how to frame students um, with asset mindsets. So yeah, that was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> It was all dope, though. Um, people, I told you at the at the at the start that this guest is is phenomenally dope, and now you know what I was talking about. And this is one of those that you might have to give a second listen to, and the second time have a, a pen or pencil in hand because there's a lot of learning going on in this, and you definitely want to take notes because um, I mean, Dr. Shea, you you brought so much 
uh, so much dopeness to this conversation around not just uh, the the ongoing fight for educational justice, but but also the the specific issues within um, how we frame certain communities and how we frame uh, certain issues in education. So, uh, folks, on our website, we're gonna put links to to her blog and to uh, some of her publications and to the uh, Black Gays podcast so you could hear her speak more about the issue of solidarity between Asian American and, and Black folks. And Dr. Shea, I just gotta say, uh, the University of Laverne is very fortunate to have you uh, for sure. And our very first guest on All the Above, uh, Dr. Akita Kassane Long, I believe she still works there. So if yes. you cross paths with her, send her a uh, warm hello from the both of us. And um, I just can't thank you enough for spending time with us here on all of the above. Thank you again for having me, Manuel and Jeff. Like it was such a pleasure to be here. And yeah, thank you very, very much. All right, folks. So up next is our class dismissed, where we will shout out some folks doing excellent things in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to give shout outs to folks doing great things in the world of education. Jeff, what do we have today? Well, Manuel, we got a story coming out of the Houston, Texas area. There is a group of parents uh, who refer to themselves as working moms uh, and have formed some kind of organization called the Red Apple Protest. It was recently seen on Twitter in a, albeit somewhat hilarious post, uh, being trolled by the Grim Reaper. Now, this Red Apple protest group uh, is pushing hard for Houston area districts to reopen physical school um, in the name of, you know, uh, protecting the needs of working moms and working families. And uh, of course, Texas being one of the nation's major hotspots uh, and coronavirus outbreaks right now um, is, you know, not necessarily going to open schools, uh, you know, at least in the short term. Uh, but the Grim Reaper came out to sort of counter protest uh, and really carrying signs that agreed with the Red Apple protest moms. But you just you have to laugh at the image there, man. Uh, <laughs> when the Grim Reaper is on your side, perhaps uh, you might want to reevaluate your position. Um, but of course, they did make it clear that they're not with the Grim Reaper, Manuel. So uh, I guess it's okay. I guess that's an important <laughs> point that, yeah, they're not with the Grim Reaper, even though the Grim Reaper had basically the same signs up, open schools now. Yeah. Yeah, I found that to be hilarious because you see, I mean, this isn't like a big protest. It looks like just a couple folks there. And um, they had to, I guess, improvise and make their own sign that says, we're, we're, not, with, we're not with the Grim Reaper or whatever it said. And it reminded me of the reopening protests out there in Florida back in like April and May when folks were going to the beaches and, and, and talking about how like, you know, whatever, um, reopen the, the economy and reopen everything. And then there was somebody who dressed as a Grim Reaper and was just like walking up and down the beach, which was just like poetic. And, um, and yeah, man, for sure, this is uh, hilarious. I saw this on Twitter and I was like, that's great. That's counter protest right there. <laughs> yes. All yeah. right, folks. At that about does it for this episode of All the Above. If you've enjoyed what you've watched, um, please consider hitting that thumbs up and that subscribe if you haven't already. And if you were listening on the go, please, when you have a moment, take a moment to uh, rate us and review us. That goes a long way for us and we for sure appreciate that. All right, we'll see you in about a week. If you are listening to this, um, we'll see you in about a week with a um, passing period podcast extra. So look out for that. 